Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Good evening. Please stand and we'll begin in prayer. Tomorrow in our calendar, the Sunday after Ascension Thursday just passed, uh, we remember the fathers who attended the first ecumenical council in Nicaea in the year 325. Now, they were not just an ordinary collection of bishops. Many of these men came with missing eyes, missing limbs, badly scarred because they had been through the persecutions of Diocletian and didn't give up the faith. They stood strong in the faith and they came together. When they spoke at the council, everybody listened with hushed respect because these men witnessed by their sufferings to the truth of the faith which they received and passed down to us. And so I will recite the hymn uh, for the day which we will sing tomorrow. Blessed are you, O Christ, our God, who have manifested our fathers as living stars upon the earth, and through them you led us to the true faith, O lover of mankind, glory to you. Christ God, give us bishops today, like those bishops at the First Ecumenical Council who witnessed to your truth. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father Joseph. Our speaker this evening is an assistant professor of theology at Christendom College, where he teaches courses in sacred scripture, revelation, and Christology. He is near completion, I say near completion, of his doctoral thesis at the Catholic University of America. I believe your thesis is now 767 pages. I can see why I keep announcing that he is near every time he comes to the Institute. <laughs> Professor Janislawski has earned degrees in philosophy and theology at Yale College and Yale Divinity School in New Haven, Connecticut. He resides with his wife and three children in Paradise, otherwise known as Front Royal, Virginia. And we are delighted to welcome him back to the Institute of Catholic Culture this evening. Thank you very much, Deacon. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, yeah, it is a big weekend for First Communions. I'd ask you to uh, pray for my daughter. Just made hers last weekend. And also, I come to you straight away from the graduation ceremony of Christendom College, where we just sent 100-something people out into the world. And they, too, could certainly uh, use your prayers during this uh, important time in their going forth to take up their vocations. So uh, don't worry, I'm not still writing the thesis. It's just been taking them a while to read it. And I don't... <laughs> I don't blame them. So uh, tonight I'm here to talk to you about St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans. And there's a couple of handouts that I made up just to, to help with the talk. And this is the first of a two-lecture series on Romans. And in part, uh, our job here is to get situated today and start looking at Romans 1 and 2. And then we'll start to go into the rest of the epistle in the second talk. 
Uh, my chief interest in going through this magnificent letter with you is to demonstrate that while indeed we are justified by faith, we are not justified by faith alone apart from works in the way that Martin Luther so interpreted the epistle. And so my ultimate goal in looking at this letter is to show you the ways in which our Catholic understanding of justification, justification indeed by faith, but as Paul says in Galatians 5-6, faith working through charity uh, is the manner in which we understand the teaching of St. Paul. It's the same manner that we can read St. Paul in conformity with St. James, who says that faith without works is dead. And it's the same manner in which the Church has always interpreted this letter up to and after uh, the Monumental Council of Trent, which gave its own definitive acts of interpretation to Paul's writing. So, turn us now to the uh, Epistle to the Romans, and I wanted to go over a little bit of the context. Part of the reason why we lose the culture war is that we don't have good jingles, and I think one of the jingles that Deacon Carnazzo has is a text without a context is no text at all. And I, that's nice. I, I'm going to use that. It's, it's, uh, the more jingles we have, the, the catchier it is, the, the more people remember. So I gave you on one handout just a little overview of the letter. And it's important for a few reasons, in part so that we understand the context of Paul's writing. Because if you take what Paul is writing about and take it out of its first century context and drop it into any other century's controversies, it's easy to misread. And the first thing we have to do in approaching sacred scripture accurately is to ascertain the literal meaning of the text, and that requires understanding the circumstances in which the text is written. So, uh, some basic data, none of this is, is particularly new or fancy, but just to walk you up to understanding Romans, if you follow along at the uh, top of the first handout, it's written likely about 56 or 57. People fiddle a little bit with the dates of composition, but most people are confident that Romans was written during Paul's third great missionary journey, and it was obviously, as the name tells you, written to the church at Rome. We know a few things about the church at Rome from both biblical sources and early church tradition. Uh, it is a mixed congregation of both uh, Jewish and Gentile Christians. We know that there was a synagogue in Rome uh, that was already long established, and there were a large number of Jews living in Rome at the time of St. Paul. And there are also Gentile members of the community. Paul addresses both, and that in part is the thrust of his letter, to teach the church at Rome how both Jews and Gentiles are justified by faith. They are saved in the same manner, and they are saved through the same means. There is no difference between them. In the greeting, the first part of the letter, we see that the church is already, I say long with quote marks around it, long established, but it's not been newly planted because he says of the church in Rome that your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So it was already in existence for some time, and it was uh, clearly a church whose reputation had already spread to other parts of the then very nascent infant church, the earliest Christianity. We don't know who first preached the gospel in Rome, uh, but already we see several indications of the church's establishment. A little bit later when Paul wrote Philippians, uh, we see that even members of, quote, Caesar's household in Philippians 4.22 had become converts to Christianity. Now, that doesn't mean Julius Caesar's son uh, or something like that, but Caesar's household was a rather large affair. He, as you might imagine, being an emperor, had a considerable palace and a considerable palace staff, but already uh, intimate associates of even the heart of the Roman Empire in Rome had become members of the Christian faith. We know for certain, it's unanimous amongst the testimony of the early church fathers, 
as far back as we have to Ignatius of Antioch and Irenaeus of Lyon, earliest second century testimony that St. Peter, of course, labored in the city of Rome during the last several years of his life. First Peter was written from there, and it was likely written before the persecution that began under Nero, sometime perhaps before 64. And we know, of course, that Peter was martyred at Rome, as was St. Paul, and Peter's death sometime in the year 67 or 68. Was Peter there when Paul wrote? The short answer is, we don't know for certain. I left you about a paragraph's worth of hypothesis, but since it's somewhat tangential to our lecture this evening, uh, it's interesting to muse about, but I'll leave that aside for now. The, the, the short answer is nothing is certain from either what Scripture says or from what the testimony of the early church fathers has to say. The chief theme of the epistle to the Romans is that of justification by faith. It really is the entirety of the letter in a sense, and it certainly dominates in a particular way the first eight chapters, uh, Romans 9 through 11, then taking a, uh, not really a detour, but a, a particular question about the role of Israel, both the Jewish Christians and the emphatically not Christian Jews in ultimately God's plan for the church and the salvation of the entire world. So we're going to focus starting today in Romans 1 and 2 and then next time continuing on 3 through 8, looking at the first part of the letter in particular, uh, but this is a theme that runs all the way throughout Romans and can be explored at great depth. Uh, I suggest to you this one very useful interpretive key. I put on the handout, uh, Romans is in many ways the companion letter of Galatians. Romans, like Galatians, concerns the theme of justification by faith, and if it's appropriate to stick a footnote in a, a lecture like this, if you're not familiar with Galatians, I can be self-referential. Uh, I had the privilege of giving two talks on that letter, and I went through it in some great detail, and there'll be some things I'll be making reference to in Galatians just to bring it on the table a little bit, but if you wanted more detail about that, we spent two whole days looking closely at Galatians some months ago. So Galatians is extremely useful because it's smaller, it's written earlier, its deployment is a little bit simpler, and the argument is a little bit more streamlined. Oh, 1705, there you go. So there's even a CD uh, that you can pick up if you want the companion to that talk. So I encourage you, uh, Romans is, sometimes people call it Paul's masterpiece, the Germans put it in his four Hauptbriefe, his chief letters, that being Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and Galatians. So there is a tremendous amount of material in Romans, and its complexity and its subtlety is profound. The work is dense, formidable, profound, beautiful. Uh, there's a quote that's been bandied around the internet from uh, N.T. Wright, a uh, well-known New Testament scholar, and I thought this was a beautiful image to describe Romans, he writes in the New Interpreter's Bible that Romans is, quote, by common consent, his, meaning Paul's, masterpiece, it dwarfs most of his other writings, an alpine peak towering over hills and villages. Not all onlookers have viewed it in the same light or from the same angle, and their snapshots and paintings of it are sometimes remarkably unlike. Not all climbers have taken the same route up its sheer sides, and there is frequent disagreement on the best approach. What nobody doubts is that here we are dealing with a work of massive substance, presenting a formidable intellectual challenge while offering a breathtaking theological and spiritual vision." End quote. 
I wonder if he wrote that on vacation near the Alps. <laughs> so, so I thought that was a memorable image, and it is uh, part of the reason why I encourage people to study up on Galatians, which is 11 chapters shorter and more focused on just one line of argument before approaching Romans, but they are good companions of each other. In Romans, Paul moves more quickly from idea to idea. Perhaps he already presupposes some knowledge of the nuances of his terms. We know for certain from Romans 3.8 that some in Rome were already familiar with Paul's preaching and teaching. He makes reference to that fact in 3.8, although it seems that some have been misinformed about precisely what Paul has said and taught in his Gentile missionary journeys. So in part, he wants to set the record straight. But anytime you enter into a conversation that's already been going a little bit before you get to the table, sometimes there's a little bit of pickup work that we have to do. I was also appreciating the difficulty of Romans anew. I like to look at the scripture in Greek before I give a lecture uh, that I haven't given in a while, just to sort of brush up and make sure I know what's going on underneath the hood. And when I was reading it a few days ago, I was overawed anew by the genuine complexity and subtlety of the underlying language. What a grammatical minefield that text can be. English translations, a poor man's way of appreciating when you have a difficult biblical text, is just take three or four English Bibles, different editions, set them next to each other, and look at how they read a particular passage. And when they all run along the same lines, you can tell that things are probably easygoing for the translator. Uh, but when they all scatter in their own different directions, you know that you have typically something genuinely difficult underlying the translation that you are seeing. And so English translations of key terms are sometimes all over the place. Uh, I found sometimes to my disappointment that uh, the terminology that we find in Paul, which is the same Greek terms that we find in the gospel, are translated differently even in the same English Bible in its gospels and in its letters of Paul. Uh, sometimes uh, idiomatic expressions uh, require careful handling, and there's a temptation, sometimes innocent, sometimes not, to take Paul's terminology and to slant it according to the theological bias of the translator. Sometimes that is simply because it is difficult. Translation is no easy work, and some amount of translation always involves interpretation. If you've ever learned another language, you realize things don't drop so neatly from one language to another, or if you've ever played with machine online translation, you know that sometimes the results of that word-for-word -word translation can be rather comical. So too, in this letter, we have a difficult task ahead of us, but nonetheless, some things I would like to point out uh, may simply be a problem of pre-existing theological bias. I found in my surprise uh, in the RSV translation, a nice phrase, persevering in good work. I think gets translated into patience in well-doing or something uh, significantly less loaded than that. And then, of course, there's the famous example of when Luther published his translation of the Bible in German, translating Romans 3.28 uh, as we are justified by faith alone apart from works of the law, inserting a line there where there is no such word in the Greek. So sometimes great liberties have been taken with the text. At other times, it may be a thing of a theological bias, whether intentional or not. And at other times, the language is just difficult. So it is a formidable epistle, but nonetheless, something that we can reap great benefit from in reading, even if you're not into the technical subtleties. I wanted to get into a little bit of the historical background on the back page of the handout, because that is also important for our work here today. 
we have in the letter that is written in the context of the controversy with the Judaizers. And I want to give a brief story of how this controversy arose, but it will be super brief because we only have an hour here this evening, and uh, I treat it in more detail in the Galatians lectures. So when Jesus, risen from the grave, goes and gives his disciples the Great Commission, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always until the end of the age. And there begins the mission of the church to all nations, Jew and Gentile. Now it's carried out and begins to be actualized just a little bit later. Uh, Father already mentioned the great feast of Pentecost coming along in just a week's time. And there we know the first preaching happened with the descent of the Holy Spirit to all the Jews gathered again in Jerusalem. And then from there, as the focus of Acts in its beginning chapters is typically on Peter and James and John going out and beginning to evangelize, first in Judea and then in Samaria and then uh, unto the ends of the earth, going out further and further. Acts 9 tells us, importantly, about the conversion of Saul, later to be called St. Paul, on the road to Damascus. And then Paul goes into a brief retirement back to his hometown in Tarsus after preaching boldly that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. In a few places, uh, he goes to recollect himself, as would be fitting after such a monumental conversion. And after Paul has gone to Tarsus, we see in Acts 10 that it is Peter who is the first to go and actually receive a Gentile into the church. So Acts 10 tells us about the conversion of the Roman centurion Cornelius. God prompting Peter by a vision on the one hand, and Cornelius by a vision and an angel on the other, bring the two parties together. And when Peter evangelizes him, the Holy Spirit descends upon them. They manifest the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, Who can forbid water for baptizing those upon whom the Holy Spirit has fallen? And having evangelized them and having seen their faith, Peter baptizes Cornelius and his household, and they become the first Gentile initiates into Christianity. Now, that's important, I think, God's providence, not only showing us the first time and the manner in which a Gentile is received into the church, but providence heads off any insinuation that the Gentile mission is somehow a heresy of Johnny-come-lately Paul. Rather, it comes directly from the head of the church, St. Peter, and is done at his hand, and that becomes the paradigm for what we'll see in the next five chapters of Acts. Uh, Paul returns. Barnabas hunts him up. He knows a good thing when he sees it, and Barnabas finds him in his recollection in Tarsus and brings him back. And they begin to conduct a first mission to Jews and Gentiles in Antioch. And then in Acts 13 and 14, we see Paul's first missionary journey with Barnabas going throughout the region of southern Galatia and reaping a great harvest amongst the Gentiles. And that is... uh, an evangelization that, like Peter's pattern, was done by preaching the word of the gospel to them when they received it in faith, administering baptism, and they are entered thus into the church. Now this causes great consternation amongst a certain group of people in the early church. They're called by various names. Sometimes uh, they are called the circumcision party, as we find it in Acts 11.2. They seem to be a group of Pharisee Christians. They become increasingly hostile to the notion that Gentiles can come into Christianity simply by hearing the word of the gospel and believing. Rather, 
their position is Gentiles must first be circumcised and made observant of the law of Moses or else they cannot be saved. So this is a critical issue. Thus they're called Judaizers because they want to make everyone Jewish first in the process of making them Christian. Now, we see that this controversy becomes so divisive that uh, in fitting that we just memorialize briefly the first council uh, of the church, the Ecumenical Council of Nicaea, maybe we'll call it the Zeroeth Council of the church. The Council of Jerusalem is called in Acts 15 in order to address this question, an essential question of faith and morals, a question that's dividing the church universal. How is one saved? Is it by what Peter and Paul have been doing, by evangelizing the Gentiles, and by having seen their faith, administering them baptism, receiving them into the church, or, as the Pharisee Christians contend, must a man also be circumcised and follow the law of Moses in order to be saved? So this comes to a head in Acts 15, where we have the Council of Jerusalem. And there we can see, after much debate, Peter rising once again at the head of the College of the Apostles and teaching that faith, grace, and baptism are the essential means of salvation, not circumcision and keeping the works of the law of Moses. And so I gave you a little quote from Acts 15, starting in verse 10. After there had been much debate, Peter rose and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days, he's hearkening back to Cornelius, God made choice amongst you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, but cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you make a trial of God by putting a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we shall be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Now, why do I do this as a brief prehistory to the epistle to the Romans? Uh, as with the uh, Zeroeth Council of the Church and the First Council of the Church and the subsequent councils of the Church, just because the Church has officially taught something doesn't mean that the dissent dies overnight. On the contrary, typically it goes on uh, still galloping about in various sectors for quite some time. And so, too, in Paul's day, even after the teaching of the Council of Jerusalem, Paul has to write a few times to correct the error still prevalent in the churches about the means of salvation. And so Galatians is dedicated entirely to this theme, as I've said, and so, too, Romans is coming to life in the midst of having to set straight this controversy about what is required for salvation. So it's important historically, or else maybe a few here might claim the privilege of being a kinsman of Christ and a blood brother of him by being descended from Israel, but most of us probably not. And so our very existence in the church and our enjoyment of things like bacon uh, in part springs from this important historical moment, but also in teaching about the essence of salvation contrary to the Judaizers, we also have a positive and precious statement about salvation that is relevant to us in every place and in every age, even now that the Judaizing controversy has passed. 
So our concern here to get to what is essential for salvation is in part sprung out of a historical debate, and even though we don't have that argument anymore, still the teaching on the essence of salvation is what we're looking at in Romans. And the reason why the historical debate is important to keep in the back of one's mind is that if one does not understand what Paul is arguing against, one is very likely to misinterpret. In particular, key phrases like, what does Paul mean by works and works of the law? If you take that phrase and strip it of its historical context, uh, then it seems like perhaps an arbitrary difference the manner in which a Lutheran and a Catholic might interpret this text. But if you immerse the text back into its original historical context, it is much easier to prevent interpretations that try to stick into the mouth of Paul a Reformation idea when it is not there. So that's part of the reason why I want to bring this uh, to the table and to get a little bit of background before we read the letter. Now the other thing, uh, well, so my, my bold-faced note at the bottom of that handout, in Romans, Paul stresses the teaching that faith, not works of the law of Moses, is what saves both Jew and Gentile. But by no means does St. Paul exclude from faith every act that a man does. That's the Lutheran notion of works. Anything that a man does is a work in the Lutheran sense. Rather, we can see, and that's what I hope to demonstrate to you starting this evening and continuing next time, that with the assistance of grace, one can and indeed must do good works, which Paul mentions in Romans 2.7, rather than works of the law of Moses or works of the flesh, so if we do good works, and in fact we're commanded to do good works, that is necessary to carry out what Paul calls the obedience of faith. And having this perspective can show to us how, for Paul, as for James, as for John, as for the early church and the church to this day, justification, ultimately the means whereby we obtain our salvation, is a matter not only of faith, but of faith working through love of faith and works together, not faith alone in the Lutheran sense. So is that clear for our basic overview? Was that all right? Was that not too brisk? Okay. The other thing that I think can be a little bit puzzling with Romans is the terminology. So I like my handouts. These are new. These are born for you guys over the past few days. So hopefully they're, they're free from typos. I try to go over it three times before I let it loose, but... Doubtless something will slip in there. Uh, I made a little handout to review Paul's terminology, and sometimes the manner in which Paul speaks uh, can be a little different than our manner of speaking. And uh, Paul, in Romans in particular, tends to be fast and loose with his vocabulary. In Galatians, maybe because they're simpler, he uses the word law typically in just one sense. And when he speaks of uh, certain mysteries, he tries to uh, do that in a rather univocal, simple fashion, and in Romans, maybe his audience is more sophisticated, we don't know. It could be because they have a substantial prehistory in Judaism, and that has its own terminology. Maybe they are more uh, a diverse church, and maybe a church that has a, a already established theological debate about this stuff going on, but when Paul speaks in Romans, he tends to move from theme to theme much more quickly than he does in Galatians or some of his other writing, and he tends to use some terms with nuance that he doesn't define. It's there, you can read it out consistently from the letter, but it's important to get a handle on what Paul's saying. 
So part of the reason why I'm being heavy on setup this evening is because its beautiful 16 chapters aren't going to be something we can read closely verse by verse in just two hours' time. So what I'm hoping to do is by a little bit of setup, save us some confusion so that we approach it aright and then see it aright by looking at the terms and knowing what they mean when we get there. Does that make sense? Rather than hashing it out on the fly and saying, well, this means this, and it's a little different than what we just saw. So some basic terms, and the first part I'm going to go through fast again because I talked about it a little bit uh, in the Galatians lecture. In English, English is a beautiful language. We get literary power in English because it's a mutt of like eight different languages, maybe more. We get loan words from everywhere, and sometimes that means we get great nuance. We can say teal, we can say azure, we can say blue. They're all loan words for just blue in the original languages. But they all mean something a little different in English. Sometimes it doesn't work so well. So a very key term uh, for Paul, justice, justification, also gets rendered into English sometimes as upright, righteous, righteousness. In English it usually centers around two different cognates, one based on just, one based on right. Really one is Latin, use, the other is German, correct. But uh, they're all fundamentally, in Greek and underlying that, in Latin, uh, the same set of words. They're all family members. So the first key term that we have to get in order to understand justification by faith is this term, just. So in Greek, DK, uh, that's the abstract thing. And that's a very broad word in Greek. It can mean justice, it can mean custom, it can be usage, right. Maybe in English we say a norm something that specifies a pattern of behavior. It's a state that you should be in. That's what it means to be DK. It's a little bit broader than our English word justice. And if someone is in the state that one should be in, whether before the law or before social custom or something like that, one is said to be dikaios. Now in English, we typically switch from something rooted in just. Most times you'll see that translated as righteous. Sometimes you'll see it translated as upright. Sometimes you'll see it translated as just. A just man, a righteous man, an upright man. That's an adjective springing from the first noun. Or if you want to talk about what's right in the guy who's being as he should be, you can speak about somebody's righteousness or justice. That's dikaiosune. But you can see in Greek it's hard to get lost because it just goes dike, dikaios, dikaiosune. All clearly the same concept just switching grammatical form. And typically we see that last verb, dikaio'o, to make or declare someone to be righteous, to evince somebody's righteousness in the past participle uh, justified. Someone who has been made, someone who has been declared, someone who has been shown to be righteous. Ultimately, these terms come to us from the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament is not written originally in Greek, although the Septuagint is a fine Greek tradition of the Old Testament. The uh, underlying concept, though, is Hebrew, and it comes from the Old Testament concept of covenant. You know that a covenant is a solemn arrangement between two parties, and it specifies terms of conduct. It's like a contract, but more solemn. It specifies behaviors on both parties of the covenant. And in the Old Testament, there's a tremendous emphasis on describing one's relationship with God as being a good ebed or servant. And uh, one is considered to be just or upright if one is in right standing according to one's covenantal standards. 
one is keeping the terms of one's covenant. One is described as a good servant, or if you want to switch into New Testament, someone who is dikaios, upright. If one is not keeping the terms of one's covenant, then one might be described as a bad servant or a wicked servant, or be edikos, not dike, but rather wicked, unjust, not upright, unrighteous. Now, why are we concerned with this? Because as sinners, we find ourselves in the condition of not doing what we should, not being in the state that we should be, not having followed the covenant that God has given us. And so we find ourselves unhappily in a condition of unrighteousness. And nobody wants to be there. And as Paul will make very clear in Romans, because what follows on that is the wrath of God. And so we have a concern. How can we go from being in a state of unrighteousness back to a state of right standing of righteousness before God? That process of going from unjust back to just, unrighteous to righteous, is the process of justification, literally being made just. And so that's part of the thrust of this whole letter is to describe the means the essential means whereby we go from being in a state of sin before God and therefore worthy of condemnation to being in a state of right standing before God and therefore, once again, worthy of his favor. And so the essential question that the Judaizing controversy springs on the church is, what must I do in order to be justified? For Paul and for Peter, we'll see, it will involve the essential works of faith, And uh, for the Judaizers, it had to include circumcision and keeping the law of Moses. Now, the law is another essential term. And here, I pity the person that reads this the first time in with a Lutheran, because here Paul is on several different terms, using the word law in different ways in different parts of the epistle. And sometimes he warns you, and sometimes it's clear from context, and other times you have to be a little bit careful with how you appreciate what Paul is saying. In Galatians, it's nice. When he says the law and the works of the law, he means the works of the law of Moses, and that's very clear. In fact, can't read Galatians coherently any other way, I maintain to you. And in Romans 2, he does speak of uh, the law, by which he means, item number one on the second handout, the law of Moses. And what is that? The positive and negative precepts that God revealed to Israel contained in the books of the Pentateuch. But Paul also speaks, most noteworthily, uh, this epistle, Romans, we're not going to take a long detour into natural law theology, but the basis, the divinely revealed basis in sacred scripture of our precious concept in the West of the natural law comes to us straight out of Romans 1. And Paul will speak of the natural moral law, something normative for all people, that even Gentiles who have never received the revelation of God, neither the Old Testament nor the Gospel, know by virtue of natural reason alone, and not by virtue of faith. So Paul speaks of a second law, which is what we call today the natural moral law. Uh, The third law that Paul will speak of sometimes is the law of God, meaning the moral law that God has revealed to man, either by nature or by supernatural means in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament by the teachings of Christ. So that's a little different. It's broader than the law of Moses and the natural moral law. And then there's also the law of sin. And that is uh, not the law that you want to follow. That's the law that you get to break as often as you'd like. Uh, 
the cruel tyranny of sin, which, you know, it's like a law. And, it, you know, habits sometimes we describe as second nature refers to, you know, a law in the descriptive sense refers to an orderly pattern, uh, a predictable way in which things happen. So when we describe natural laws like in physics, we can go, oh, look, well, if you know how these things work, when you put some, I'm an old physicist, so, you know, when you put charged metallic spheres in a magnetic field and you move them around, you can see and predict the spiral motion that they'll do the, so you know what I mean by the laws of nature. If you have a good enough grasp on them, you can see the routine pattern in which things unfold. And Paul describes this law. This is the tyranny of sin, the tendency in man uh, that draws him to temptation. Without grace, we are slaves to this tyranny. Even with grace, we still have to struggle with uh, what Paul develops in a particular way in this letter with what we as Catholics call concupiscence disordered desire, not sin in and of itself in the way that we mean it today, but the tendency of the things of the flesh to draw us towards doing things that we know we should not do. And so famously in Romans 7, Paul teaches on this, where he talks about, I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin which dwells in my members. And he struggles about, I, you know, I do the thing that I know I should not do and the thing I know I should do I don't do. And so part of that is described in Pauline terminology here as sort of a battle of law against law. The law of sin versus the law of God. And so when Paul's talking about the law, we've got to be attentive because which law? And sometimes that really matters when you want to get the debate straight between Catholics and Lutherans. And then so too, on the back side of handout two, multiple uses of the term works in Romans. Not our problem in Galatians, but certainly our problem in Romans. Uh, works of the law of Moses. Most times, this is what Paul's talking about. And this is natural and commonsensical because the chief historical circumstance of the writing of Romans is in response to the Judaizers, whose position, once again, is unless you are circumcised and keep the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so it is natural that we find a lot of times Paul referring to works of the law of Moses. But there are also other works in this letter. Not used as a noun in Galatians, but it is here in Romans. Um, Galatians simply speaks of faith working through love. But here in Romans, we have good works also mentioned to us. These are the acts that we do when we are in a state of grace. Things that we do according to the law of God. And upon the basis of these good works, we indeed will be judged, as Paul tells us in Romans 2. So we'll see those in a moment. And then there are still other works mentioned by Paul in Romans. Works of darkness, as he calls them, works of the flesh. These are the acts that we do when we are prompted by the law of sin and we obey it rather than the law of God. So, multiple senses of works, multiple senses of law. That way we've got to keep our eyes peeled when we're reading this letter that we don't conflate one for the other. Does that make sense? Okay, so I'd rather orient us now before we get into uh, deep waters and therefore find ourselves a little lost. Uh, two other quick subtleties where Paul likes to talk about sins on the one hand and trespasses or transgressions on the other. And I gave you a little biblical dictionary on uh, the concept of sin 
It's a bigger term for Paul than it is for us because he uses this in the well-established Old Testament sense. The Old Testament sense of sin is a broad word, broader than what we usually mean in English. The first sense I gave you, the objectively bad act itself, like when we say it's a sin uh, to punch somebody in the nose out of wrath like that, when it's not a sin if you do it out of holy zeal, like St. Nicholas did to Arius at the Council of Nicaea. So um, <laughs> I gave an easy example. It's a sin to lie. I don't know why punching in the nose sprung up. But, um, the, or B, the deliberate choice to do the bad act. So you've got the bad act on the one hand, describing it as a sin. It's a sin to lie. You've also got the thing that we typically call a sin in English still today, the intentional choice to do the bad act. So you can say he sinned, he committed a sin when he did this bad thing. But in the scripture, it's a little bit broader. Sometimes objectively bad actions that are done without explicit awareness of their evil character are called sins. So you can say someone's sinning when they're doing something that is objectively wrong, even if they don't really fully understand that. You're still describing the action. Uh, and then lastly, sometimes the Bible even uses sin to refer to the bad consequences of evil action even if those consequences don't sort of have a moral value in and of themselves. That's part of what's going on with the sins of the fathers or on their children. Uh, when you have an alcoholic father, for example, uh, he might have his own personal... There's the objectively bad act of uh, alcoholism. That's the sin in the first sense. There's the deliberate choice to do it, perhaps. Uh, sin in the second sense. Uh, there could be uh, someone not aware of the full scope of the moral consequences of alcoholism, sin in the third sense, and then there can be the grave effects on the children. Perhaps they pick up sinful behaviors, but even if they don't, they certainly suffer because of the alcoholism of the father, and in that sense, in the biblical sense, the sin of the father is upon their children because you see them suffering, and the Bible looks at sin as a deviation from God's plan. They can say, look, well, that's sin. They're not doing anything wrong. But the scripture will sometimes call that sin the disordered result, the falling apart of the harmony of God's creation. Trespass, a little different. Trespass, you know it's worse when dad's told you and you do it anyway, right? <laughs> Trespass refers to an intentional violation of a known law. And we'll get to that when we hit Romans 5 through 7. Lastly, justified versus saved. This is a fun word study. Justified word he talked about. But saved. Um, saved from what? Right? And are you saved? From what? From God's wrath. From the final judgment. That's the sense in which Paul uses it in this letter. Now, doing the Greek again, interesting word study. The vast majority of times, Paul uses this verb in the future tense. It's not a question of are you saved right now. It's a question of will you be saved? Sometimes he speaks in the conditional tense that one may be saved. But very rarely does he speak of it in the present tense. Justification is something that happens now. One can be justified, made in a state of right standing before God, but one will be saved. But that requires remaining justified until the time of judgment, when either we end or the world ends. One way or the other, it's judgment time general or particular judgment as we call it today. So I found that interesting just because sometimes people automatically go to the once saved, always saved. And even in certain key passages in Romans, I find it translated with a slant that way. So uh, Romans 8.24, I give you an example there. For a man, This is RSV, so not even the King James. For a man believes with his heart and is so justified and confesses with his lips and so is saved. Sounds like it's a done deal, right? 
confess with your lips, bing, saved. Uh, not so. You take a look at the Greek, and it's literally, he confesses with his lips, and so unto salvation. It's ice there, uh, indicating movement towards a state. And so, uh, being very careful with Paul's language, the vast majority of the times, saved is will be saved. And there we see nicely, I think, you can see in a word study, our Catholic understanding of, you know, somebody asks you, are you saved? And you might say, I hope so. Uh, we'll see when I get there. Because we have an understanding of being in a state of righteousness, but because of the possibility of using our free will to sin, we might lose that righteousness. And so it's an essential question. Will you have final perseverance? Will you, as Romans says in 2.6, persevere in doing good works? And if one does so until the end, then one will be saved. But if one is brought before the tribunal of God in a condition of unrighteousness, then it's not salvation, but the wrath of God is upon you, says Paul. So I wanted to distinguish right from the bat justification, which can happen right now, and being saved, which is ultimately something about us with respect to our judgment. Does that make sense? Can you see how you can fall immediately into sort of a fundamentalist, once saved, always saved, or uh, you know, just confess on your lips and you're saved forever, or sort of a Calvinist position if you don't have that distinction? And the thing I was surprised just looking at the grammar in Paul is that, you know, in the vast majority of times, it's in the future and it's in the conditional. That's in part the reason for the uh, grammatical overview. Now let's start getting some works texts on the table, and we're going to continue with only Romans when we pick up the thread on the next lecture. So if you turn to Romans 1, Romans is right after the book of Acts, which is right after the Gospels. It's the big one. You can't miss it. It's up front because it's the longest letter. That's the reason why it's up front. They're sorted by scroll length. We get Paul's introduction. And I don't know if I gave a little overview of the typical parts of a Pauline letter, but uh, this is Paul's typical manner of greeting. Paul, a servant, there's the concept servant, of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and designated son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name amongst all the nations, including yourselves, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all God's beloved in Rome, who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a long hello, uh, but that's essentially his greeting. Uh, he's opening up with some rhetorical fireworks, and it's not uncommon in a bigger letter for the greeting already to bristle with some of the concepts that he wants to treat in great detail later on. But the thing I wanted to look at uh, another thing, just sort of reading this afresh, is the term that he leads with. He's leading with several things. So you can see uh, Jesus' descent from Israel and foreshadowing the mystery of Israel and the church going out to the Gentiles already in the greeting. And he even says in one five, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name amongst all the nations, including yourselves, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Remember, Romans is a mixed community. Nations, a lot of times, is a stand-in word for Gentiles, gentes. And so uh, this recalls, first of all, to me at least, the Great Commission. Go therefore and baptize all nations. 
That's how Paul introduces himself. An apostle, one sent out to go and do this, to spread the name of Jesus Christ to all the nations. And what does Christ teach in the Great Commission? Go back to handout number one. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's the essential part. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So what is this Pauline term, the obedience of faith, referring to? The same thing to which Christ refers in the Great Commission. The preaching of the gospel out not only to Jews but to Gentiles so that all people might observe the teachings of Christ. That is the obediencia fide, the obedience of faith. It's an important concept for Paul. He bookends the letter with it. If you skip to the end, don't worry, you won't spoil the story. He closes with this as well in 16, the very last few verses. It's common for Paul to sign off with a blessing. He sometimes does that before his shout-outs. He has a uh, you didn't have Twitter and Facebook back in the day, so a lot of times Paul will shovel in greetings from his friends that are with him to the recipients if they know people over there. So, after Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater. After that, which is usually the sign-off, 25 through 27, our little concluding doxology, our little praise of God PSing the letter to a close. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret for long ages, but is now disclosed through the prophetic writings, and is made known to all the nations. He's referring to the mystery of Jesus Christ and the salvation of the church. If you go to Paul's other letters, that's the mystery hidden for ages in God. So he only refers to it briefly here. According to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So there, after briefly touching on the mystery hidden for ages in God, God's preparation for Christ and the church through Israel, the coming forth of Christ and his church in Paul's own time, he then says once again that may God strengthen you ultimately to bring about the obedience of faith. And so at the beginning and at the end of the letter, we have this stress on the necessity of the obedience of faith. Not merely the having of faith in the intellectual sense of abiding by certain propositions, thinking that they're true, but the obedience of faith, the carrying out of the commandments of Christ in what we do. I find that's important. Uh, beginnings, these are carefully crafted, and the ending is, is certainly tacked on there at the end for a reason, to give us uh, our first overview of what Romans is there to do in the middle. So when the heavy lifting gets thick in Romans 3 through 8, don't forget the letter begins and ends is ultimately all about the obedience of faith, the carrying out of the Great Commission. So there's one text already that's suggestive of the necessity of works. Because obedience is nothing more than something that we do. Now, we can't do it by our own fallen human natural power. Part of what Paul is going to stress again and again is the necessity of doing this with the assistance of God's grace. Without that, we can do nothing. As Jesus himself teaches in the Gospel of John, apart from me, you can do nothing. So Paul, will, sometimes it's the elephant in the room. We tend to uh, sometimes misread things because they're too familiar to us. 
This happens all the time in the infancy narratives. He knew her not until she had born a son. And everyone says, oh, look at that. Um, that's a proof text in Scripture that Mary had other children with Joseph after she gave birth to Jesus because we misinterpret what the evangelist is up to when he says he knew or not. Because why? Neither we nor the Protestants nor most readers even into the 20th century no longer have a big issue with the virgin birth. Uh, there's a fight between Catholics and Protestants about whether Mary was a virgin after the birth of Christ, but we in the Protestants, most people agree that Mary was a virgin in giving birth to Christ. But for the apostles, not so. So part of the reason why Matthew's emphatic and says he knew her not until she had born a son is because he wants to stress Joseph had nothing to do with this whatsoever. She's the virgin that shall conceive and bear. And that's already so well-worn in our consciousness that we actually misread because the obvious thing Matthew's saying seems too obvious, and then people throw in some other interpretation, like, well, that means she must have had other children afterwards. So to here sometimes, when terms are uh, sometimes a little bit too familiar to us, you can pass over them and fail to grasp their obvious significance. And so too with the obedience of faith. So faith as a mental ascent is one thing, but faith for Paul is going to be a bigger reality than purely a mental ascent to certain revealed propositions. You already know that, sort of naturally, in English. Faith can mean lots of things. There's the objective sense of faith, right? We can talk about the faith of the church as taught to us in the catechism. That's the you know, paragraph number stuff, all the items that one should affirm. But then we can also talk about keeping the faith, can we not? Or living the faith. We don't switch terms and then talk about that as something else, living out what Jesus told us to do. We still refer to it as the faith. Or when you look at Mother Teresa, you can say, look at her faith when she's out there hugging lepers in dirt in the gutters of Calcutta. And so faith is a term like obedience that I encourage you not to underread. Because for Paul, it has a breadth of signification. Yes, it does mean what we believe by grace because God has revealed it, but it doesn't mean just that. It doesn't mean what Luther would call faith alone. It means something bigger. It means a faith ultimately working and living through love. And so uh, as we drill into Paul's analysis of the importance of faith, let's not lose track of it because sometimes we import understandings, whether familiar ones from Catholicism or familiar ones from Lutheranism, it's important that we track the Apostles' actual usage. So the obedience of faith in 1.6, already significant for our attention. Then we get a little thanksgiving. That's Paul's typical way of establishing rapport, saying something nice about the community to which he writes. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul had wanted to go to Rome for some time, and he will indeed get there, in chains twice, (laughs) to impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And I, I tag that as a deferential phrase. Sometimes Paul speaks as a father to his children, but here, to the Church of Rome, he first starts with, impart some spiritual gift to you, and then, in a more deferential way, that we may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith, 
setting himself more on a par with the faith of the Roman community. Then he talks about how he was prevented and he's busy and he's under obligation to both Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish, but I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, focus in on 116. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man or birds or animals or reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So there we have a text that's doing several things at once in Paul's typical style in this letter. And there's our foundational natural law text. I hope you all took that away from a first reading that Paul is talking about. Even the Gentiles who do not know any better because they don't have the revelation of God old or new can know by reason alone a certain amount about God and indeed about proper conduct. And then because they fail to adhere to this truth and then fail worse to live it out, God gives them over to what we'll see later called the law of sin. And they manifest this apostasy in a bunch of foul behaviors. It's a tangent for our consideration tonight, but the Zinger text from St. Paul on homosexual conduct immediately follows this passage. Uh, That is one of the huge roadblocks in the way of people that would want to biblically legitimize the conduct of homosexuality, Romans 1.26, through the balance of that chapter. It's a profound thing, but it's aside from our interest tonight. The first part of the reading, though, in 116, Paul starts to do things that, again, keep us on our toes. Or 117, for in it, meaning the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. So maybe a little question. In the RSV, that's in quotes. What's he quoting? Anybody know? This is a, if, I need a jingle for this. Maybe Deacon can help me make a jingle for it. But I try to drill home to all my students. Every time you see a quotation in the scripture, not only look down the bottom of the apparatus and see that it's Habakkuk 2.4, but go back and read the bigger passage. Because Paul's going to pull out a one-liner, and he's going to think, he's going to trust, he's going to presume that the original audience knows exactly what he's talking about. Like someone could say a line from a folk song, and I have to pick my songs carefully and try to base this on the audience and get it right. But if I say, how many roads must a man walk on, uh, maybe everybody here knows I'm talking about Bob Dylan. I don't have to sing the rest of the song. 
So, so too, when Paul cites Scripture, he's going to pull out individual citations from the Old Testament and expect that you know what he's talking about. And so what is he talking about with, for as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Last time when I talked about Galatians, there's a couple of key historical arguments Paul makes. And he pops them in Romans, but not in order. He mentions them only very briefly. I often wonder whether Romans are familiar with Paul's writing to the Galatians. And the two arguments that he gives to the Galatians about how you can prove to a Judaizer that circumcision and works of the law of Moses aren't necessary to be considered righteous is one proof text from the Torah and one proof text from the prophets. Typical Pharisaical mode of argument. First prove your case from the Torah, then prove your case from the prophets. One and two in terms of importance of divine revelation. And so he cites first Genesis 15.6 and says, Look, when Abraham believed the promises of God, Genesis says, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And that happens 14 years, two chapters, before circumcision is even introduced into the life of Abraham. So if Abraham could be righteous without circumcision, so too can the Gentiles be righteous without circumcision. can't be essential if you can do it without it. But just in case you go, well, that was before. What about after? His second favorite text quotes it here, quotes it in Galatians, and if you believe uh, Hebrews is written by Paul, quotes it in Hebrews. Habakkuk 2.4, He who through faith is righteous shall live. In the time of the prophet Habakkuk, the Babylonian exile is coming. They're beating down the door, and Habakkuk's prophetical vision can see the desolation of the first temple and the hauling off of Jews, pious and impious alike, into Babylonian captivity. And while that might be the righteous punishment of God upon the wicked, Habakkuk laments, What are we going to do, O Lord, with no temple, with no functioning priesthood? with the inability to keep all of your ordinances. And God tells the prophet Habakkuk, he whose soul is not upright in him shall fail, but the righteous man shall live by his faith. So even without the works of the law of Moses, even after they were given, someone like Habakkuk in those times could be righteous by means of faith. Now, Paul retrieves these arguments from Galatians and puts them to new purpose here in Romans. But that's part of what he's arguing. that Just like the Jews in captivity could be righteous by faith without works of the law of Moses, so too the Gentiles, to whom the law of God had not yet come, could also be righteous by virtue of their faith without circumcision and without the law of Moses. So we're out of time here tonight. Uh, and I'll wrap up there. We'll pick up in chapter 2 next time. But we're going to keep going with a close reading. And I hope the setup was valuable because it should hopefully prevent us slipping into some confusion and wondering whose law and or whose line is it anyway or which faith and what righteousness, just to lay it out clearly and maybe you can meditate on that and read the epistle over yourself. I highly recommend that. Meditate it a few times. It's a beefy, beautiful letter. And uh, take a look at the handouts, read it, meditate on it, and that way we'll be able to read it closely for the balance of the chapters when I see you again on the 18th. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor. You mentioned early on the difference between Galatians and Romans and that Paul may have been talking to a much more informed group of people and so forth. 
so that that's why it's much more complex than so forth in nature, which gave me a, raised an interesting question for me. Since Paul hadn't been to Rome yet, where he had been to Galatia, the correspondence between the churches, even that early, to different areas had to be very in-depth for him to have that understanding of the Roman church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's certainly, there's more mail than we know of. We even have in Paul's writing references to other letters that he has written that we no longer possess or not canonical. Also, while paper copying and manufacture of books was arduous, ancient history is not my undergraduate specialty, but I've seen historians remind us on occasion not to underestimate the Roman roads and the Roman mail system, the Roman ability to pass messages through couriers, and there's certainly an active going back and forth of people as well. Paul often sends a courier with his message and then gets people back, and so there was an oral circulation of information too. He certainly knows enough when he writes Romans to know not only that the Romans have known about him, but that they've received a misreported account of what Paul has been preaching because he has to correct it in Romans 3.8. It's not as some allege. So not only do they know about him, but he knows enough that he knows that they know about him and that they don't know about him quite rightly. How that happens, whether through writing or through oral communication, we don't know. Could be either, could be both. I was interested in this, um, the RSV for the man believes in this, with his heart and so is justified and confesses with his lips and so is saved. We have had so many Bible translations, and I thought in this day and age, everything was supposed to, you know, I mean, we're wiser, smarter, whatever. Why, if it's been mistakenly translated? Because I hear people talk like you, like, well, we know exactly what that ancient Greek word means. Why doesn't it ever get corrected? (laughs) Well... I read this a lot. In fact, I still, the second editions, uh, the red cover's already different than the blue cover. I don't know if you know, this is the RSVCE version 1, and the one that they now publish, which has the red cover with the icons on it, is RSVCE version 2, and already there are a number of changes between 1 and 2. Small, but sometimes uh, insightful, like instead of Paul declaring people accursed, he declares them anathema, which is what the Greek says, one that has a much clearly historical church association than simply accursed. So sometimes there are touch-ups, the RSV in particular. Ultimately, this is a many editions and many mutations descendant of the KJV. King James Version to the, I think, authorized version to the revised version, the revised standard version, and then this is now the revised standard version CE, Catholic edition, uh, which makes its choice about certain text waiting differently than the Protestants in the regular RSV, not CE do, with the authority of the Vulgate and the Septuagint. So sometimes there are fundamental choices about what texts to use as your authoritative basis for the scripture that go into that, that make the RSV CE different than the RSV. There's an index of changes that you can read in the back. I didn't look at many. I, I looked at the Vulgate. I looked at the original Greek, I looked at the RSV, I looked at the King James just to sort of get a feel for what that translation is doing since it's commonly used by Protestants, but I don't think it boils down to to simple neglect because translation can be difficult. The people that perform it are working sort of under different philosophies of what it means to translate accurately. I think we've gotten more clear in the last part of the 20th century that dynamic equivalent or trying to make it 
talk directly like it would have been talking directly in the first century means too much interpretation and people are starting to be aware of that limitation because it lets the door open too widely to the translator's theological bias. But with this particular text, I don't know, but it might be in part because they're working with a many layers revision of something that ultimately comes down from a Protestant and then an ecumenical provenance. I'm not sure what went into those decisions, but there are many factors that, that can sort of influence how a Bible translation goes. Why isn't there one right one? I'm, I'm not sure I can answer that, except that it might be somewhat of a complex issue. It keeps ancient language professors in a nice job. <laughs> you mentioned, interestingly, that Paul was deferential to the Church of Rome. Now, it's possible that this occurred before the papacy settled in Rome, uh, so considering that Paul seems to be second in the church after Peter himself, why would he be deferential at all? It's a matter of some significant conjecture because we have very few, well all the fathers say that Peter worked in Rome the last few years of his life and was martyred there. When Peter first came to Rome is not in anywhere nearly detailed, uh, recorded in, in early church history, and we don't get uh, very many statements about Peter's first coming to Rome in scripture either. So some people have hypothesized that he was there, uh, but the contrary hypothesis to that is that why wouldn't he have been greeted by name since he's Prince of the Apostles and Paul clearly knows who he is. Uh, others have suggested and in part based on a reading of, uh, I think it's Romans 12.8, but he who presides let him do so diligently that Peter we know was missionizing all around not just in Antioch and in Rome, it was going in several different places. He could have preached at Rome, founded the church in Rome, established some order there, continued to preach in other places, and would come back around periodically until, in his last years, he settled there and ultimately died there. Some have supposed that perhaps this setting himself on a peer level to be mutually encouraged by one another's faith might be reflective of the Petrine origin of the church in Rome, uh, even if Paul's lack of greeting indicates that Peter himself might not have been there in the month when Paul wrote. I don't want to make more than what we can actually say on the basis of what's in the text. You're sort of insinuating that, you know, wouldn't this indicate something about Peter's primacy and the, the dignity of his person already associated with the Church of Rome? Maybe. Maybe. I'd like to thank you for giving us an ordered list of St. Paul's uses of the term the law in the Epistle to the Romans. Uh, of the four that you mentioned, the one that seems least familiar to me is the term, the law of sin. I was wondering if St. Paul is drawing on some existent idea of a law of sin, or, or where else he got that, that concept from. Yeah, it's a fascinating issue. One of the things that, it's probably good because the handout's short, uh, but I was wanting as a next stage to actually start lining up all the individual citations to get a good kind of, here's the proof text for each of these concepts, and then here's the numerical sort of prevalence of him using the term this way versus that. That didn't happen in the past few days yet. Uh, but the other thing that I was very curious about is um, if he is writing to a place that we know had a long-established synagogue and a learned community of Jews, uh, what might be the sort of pre-Christian terms of art, sort of the manner in which theological conversations were carried out by Jews during Paul's day in those regions of the world, and how did that come to shape Christian usage? We're on much sounder ground when you can go, aha, look, he's using this concept sin in the manner in which the Old Testament typically uses it. 
but just as it would be primitive to assume that 20th century Catholic theology was done just in the same way as 12th century Catholic theology, you can't leap from the law of Moses or the prophets and presume that things were in the pristine, unevolved state, you know, 800 plus years later. So we have other ways of getting into uh, study of Jewish theology in the intertestamental period, in the time leading up to Christ. A little of that I've done. I'd like to do more. I know that there was some consideration, I think that dates to intertestamental times, of uh, based on things like Deuteronomy 30, I set before you two paths, one of life and one of death, which is repeated in Jeremiah, and then you see that in the Didache. This notion that in man there were two, I think the Hebrew term is yetzer, uh, inclinations, one towards life and one towards death. It kind of comes into the Christian period with the little angel and the little devil on your shoulder. But already I think that notion was already going in Judaism that there was an inclination more of the spirit towards the law of God and an inclination that was also in man that was contrary to that. Uh, what they root that in, the psychology, the theology, uh, I don't know and I'm not sure how much we know, but it may have been a concept already you know, being developed at the time. I don't know, that's sort of a non-answer, but yeah, there could be, uh, I will look, I will hunt for you. I came away fascinated by this. Is he using something else uh, as part of the background for this discussion? Thank you very much, Professor. Okay. Thank you very much for coming this evening. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.